The first reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors, demand, tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skills. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day of Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. That first scripture lesson uh, hits the painful notes of what it feels like to be in exile, uh, sitting along the banks of the river, unable to sing the songs of their homeland. They leave their harps hanging in the trees. This next lesson strikes a more hopeful note, as Jeremiah reminds the people that God has promised one day they will return to Jerusalem and rebuild. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its town when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its towns shall live there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. I will satisfy the weary, and all who are faint I will replenish. Thereupon I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals, just as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another, or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Come, Holy Spirit, as we hear these ancient words of Jeremiah, speak a new word of hope into us. 
write it on our hearts that we might carry you and your grace with us now and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Jeremiah earned a nickname, the Weeping Prophet. He doesn't have the happiest of books in the Bible. Out of 50-some chapters, about 48 of them are about doom and gloom and punishment for God's people. Jeremiah was hated in his day. When he heard that the Babylonians were going to attack Jerusalem, Jeremiah prayed to God and came to the leaders with this advice, that they should surrender. He told the kings that they would lose the battle if they went out to fight. He announced to them that God was not on their side. He told the people that they had been wicked and that the leaders had been corrupt and that they had lost God's favor. And so the protections they had enjoyed on the battlefield in other battles would not be for them this time. And sure enough, as kings do, they didn't listen to the prophet. Here's why that's a problem, right? If you know your ancient Near East geography or even your present-day Near East geography, there it is, right? There's uh, modern-day Israel or the, the ancient state of Canaan. And what do, you, what do you notice about that spot on the map? Number one, it's not very big, right? And number two, it's right between some other much larger places with much larger armies. So every time the Egyptians want to attack the Babylonians or the Babylonians want to attack the Egyptians or the Assyrians want to attack the Egyptians, they all have to go through the land of Judah, the land of Canaan. What's true in Jeremiah's day is still true today, right? All kinds of conflict that happens in the Middle East, it all centers around and goes through Israel. Well, Israel finds themselves yet again squeezed between two big empires. And we talked about this last week. That's when the exile happened. When the Assyrians came in and conquered them, and the Babylonians after that, they conquered them and they carried their best and their brightest, their leaders and their children, and took them away. Can you imagine what that would feel like to see your children taken away by a foreign government, carried off hundreds of miles away. They get new names, they get new identities, they learn a new language and learn new customs and a new culture. When I read this story, I think about the kids at our own southern border today, being removed from their families, carried off to detention centers. The news is bleak when Jeremiah starts his book and the letters that he writes. But as is the case with many prophets, the the sting of God's judgment is real. But God does not allow this word to be the final word. Jeremiah says that redemption and salvation and hope for the future are coming. 
Well, Israel found themselves in trouble many times over, right? Squeezed between all these bigger empires, pushing their way and bullying them. I ran across this quote this week by Isaac Singer. He said, I only pray when I am in trouble. The problem is I'm in trouble all the time. (laughs) You know, we thought about these pressures on Israel and how... In some ways, the exile actually helped them to grow closer to God in the end. We heard in the psalm that Ron read this morning that when they first arrived, they couldn't sing the songs of their faith in a new land. They were so distraught about being carried away that they hung their harps on the branches of the trees by the Jordan River and walked away from them. You know that feeling when there's a a place that you just can't go back to, that the memories are too raw and too painful. Well, in last week's scripture, we heard Jeremiah's advice, which comes in chapter 27, where he talks to the people and says that they need to settle in. Uh, the, The famous line is, work for the good of the city where you live. He tells them that they need to build families, that they're going to be in captivity for a long time, for generations, for for 70 years, they will live in Babylon. And he gives them sort of a, a roadmap for surviving this time, that they need to settle in, build houses, grow families, but not give up hope. And so when we hear this chapter, one of Jeremiah's only bits of good news in all 50-some of his chapters, we realize that this hope is is hard won, that this hope is a radical hope. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Over and over in his proclamations, he talks about the tears of the Israelite people. When they're carried away, They flow as tears of sadness. But in this chapter, Jeremiah talks about their tears when they return. When they come back into their homeland, the tears of sadness will become tears of joy. He tells the people that the grace of God won't erase the trauma of the exile, but that their woundedness will be healed. He uses the old proverb, which takes uh, place in other parts of the Bible as well, saying that when the parents eat sour grapes, the children's teeth will be set on edge. But he says that this proverb no longer applies. There's lots of places in the Bible where it worries about the, the sins of one generation being carried on to the next. And we sort of know that's true, right? You might know that in your own family or in the families of those that you know and love, where there are cycles that repeat themselves generation by generation. Cycles of abuse, cycles of addiction, cycles of poverty. Even as a society, we we grapple with the effects of, of racism and slavery and the civil rights movement, all playing out across generations. But Jeremiah tells them that this will no longer be true. 
that the parents eating sour grapes will not set the children's teeth on edge. He says no longer can they use this strategy to deflect the blame. They can't say it's not my fault. It's just the way I am. It's my parents' fault. Jeremiah insists on personal responsibility for our own actions. I was reading recently about some new theories in medicine and in education. There's something called the ACEs score, the Adverse Childhood Experiences. So bad things that happen to you in your growing up years. There are 10 categories. You get a point every time you, you score one of these categories. And they're terrible things. Various kinds of abuse and trauma. For example, if your parents are divorced when you're a kid, that's a point. If you lived in a home that had domestic violence, that's a point. If your home contained drug abuse, another point. If you experienced neglect, you score again. They discovered this first in the late 1980s uh, when a researcher realized that some kids were dropping out of a, a weight loss study out in California, even though the children were successfully losing weight. And he wondered why he had such a high dropout rate. And he came to find this correlation between their ACEs score, the amount of trauma they experienced as children, and their ability to follow through at six months or 12 months, to, to follow through on the study or, or many other categories in their life. They've studied these ACEs scores now and realized that the higher your score, the higher the rates of things like depression and heart disease, cancer and lung disease, and even a shortened lifespan if you score highly on this. When I think about ACEs scores and about Jeremiah's comment, I wonder what it is that we pass on to the next generation. What is it you'll be giving to your kids and your grandkids? Jeremiah is telling the people they need to prepare their children to lead faithful lives that especially when they are trapped living in exile, how will they prepare the next generation to be the ones who are ready to return to Jerusalem and rebuild God's city? But Jeremiah is hopeful. When he tells them that the sour grapes your parents ate will not affect you, it's a word of hope. Jeremiah insists that no one's destiny is predetermined. No matter if you came from the worst of circumstances, no matter what challenges you may face, they do not define you. You are a child of God. Some of us may have started out with a great set of parents who provided everything that we needed, and others had parents who struggled. But it does not determine our fate. Jeremiah uses two verbs to tell the people how they must move forward. He says, you will go to plant and to build. You may notice that's the same two verses. He told them to go into exile, to plant and build, that they would return from Jerusalem to do the same, plant and build. Think about planting a seed. It's a pretty vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? Sure, you can check the weather. Maybe you can test the pH of the soil. 
You can prepare the ground, but, but once you put that seed in there, it's vulnerable. And you're vulnerable too. You wonder, was the seed still good? Will it sprout? What if there's a frost? Will there be enough rain? Will there be too much rain? Will there be enough sunlight for this seed to get the start that it needs? Jeremiah tells the people that God is planting a seed, and this seed is a new covenant, not written on stone tablets like the one Moses received, but this new covenant will be written on their hearts. It's a very famous line from the Bible, this idea of a new covenant in Jeremiah. And it helps us to hold together the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament, the Christian Scriptures of the New Testament, wondering what what is the relationship between the two, the promises that God made to Israel and the promises that God makes in Jesus Christ. I'm going to teach you a brand new word today. You ready? I'm going to guess that nobody knows this word yet, but you will soon. The word of the day is supersessionism. Can anybody give me the definition for supersessionism? I have chocolate. I would would reward you. Okay, so you're going to learn this word today. Supersessionism is a theological term. When you say that the new covenant of the New Testament completely replaces the covenants of the Old Testament. In other words, that Christianity replaces Judaism. This belief has problems. Supersessionism is is not the teaching of the United Methodist Church. It's not my belief either. When we think about the new covenant completely replacing the old, it leads to some dangerous places to some negative attitudes and disparaging rhetoric toward Jews. And at its worst, it can even lead to violence. made some discoveries when researching the sermon this week about supersessionism. Keep that word in mind, right? I was doing some reading about this guy. Anybody recognize him? It's a little easier than knowing the last word. This is Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, right? He marched up to his church in Germany and posted his 95 theses on the wall, all his arguments against the Catholic Church, and birthed the movement of Protestantism. So in some ways, he is the father of all Protestant Christians around the world and therefore has had profound influence on us who sit here. Martin Luther wrote many great theological works, uh, incredible sermons, the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that was his. But he also wrote another book that I did not know about. And I spent three years in seminary, and nobody ever mentioned this, but Martin Luther wrote the book, On the Jews and Their Lies. It's not a little pamphlet. It's hundreds of pages thick. Martin Luther, in his book, On the Jews and Their Lies, recommended the following things. We should set fire to their synagogues and schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed. 
Jewish prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught should be taken from them. In addition, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Sounds pretty rough, right? And as if that wasn't harsh enough, he said, their safe conduct on the highways should be abolished completely for the Jews so they couldn't travel. And that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. So they should have their money stolen too. He refers to the Jews as these poisonous and venomed worms who should be drafted into forced labor or expelled for all time. Wow, right? Martin Luther, the the father of Protestantism, wrote those words. Martin Luther, the German theologian, wrote those words in 1580-something. It's pretty easy to draw some lines from there, though, right? Talked about the Jews as demons and liars and accursed. And, And from that seed that was planted, some other people had ideas in Germany, right? And it's pretty easy to draw a line from the rhetoric of Martin Luther to the rhetoric of 1930s Germany, and to its eventual implications. In the Holocaust of the Jews. And so, I bring you back to our word of the day, right? Supersessionism. Maybe you didn't know it before, but I kind of feel like you should. And we need to be aware of the ways that we talk about the Old Covenant and the New, the Old Testament and the New. So let's compare that old covenant, the, the one received at Mount Sinai when Moses comes down off the mountain with the stone tablets. Moses was the receiver and the interpreter of God's word. But Jeremiah says the new covenant will be written on your hearts, that everyone of every age will know it. What's written deeply on your heart? What's written in a way so deep down that only you can see it and read it and know it? Think about that original covenant, the the old covenant. The people came up as slaves out of Egypt, and they moved into the promised land. And God told them, when you arrive there, you are to live differently. You are to love each other. And love God with generous hearts. You will be different from the other nations around you. You'll worship only God, and you'll be different from these idolatrous and brutal neighbors that surround you. And each time God gives them a command, it it returns to who they were and who they now are, as those who were captives in Egypt and now are set free. The Old Covenant contains commands like this. Love the stranger, because you were once strangers in Egypt. Open your hand to the poor and needy in your land, because you were a slave in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the orphan, the widow, or the immigrant in your land, because you were a slave in Egypt. Do not glean what is left in your field, for you were a slave in Egypt. People in Jeremiah's time forgot who they were and where they came from. 
They forgot especially that they were God's people, set apart to live in a different way. The people of Jeremiah's time broke that covenant with God. They mistreated one another and their neighbors. And so God announces a new covenant, but not supersessionist. This new covenant is actually right in line with the old. It's not a replacing of, but an extension. And in that word of hope that Jeremiah gives to the people, we hear God's word. God's word of hope that comes to us today. The same message is present there, that sin and failure cannot derail God's purposes for his people. For Jeremiah's people, it separated them from their homeland. Their actions did bring punishment and consequence to them and to their children. But in the end, God is able to overcome. Sometimes people get the mistaken idea that there's a there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, and that they're so wildly different. You know, the mean old God in the Old Testament and the happy, loving God of the New. But in this point, this hinge point between the Old and the New Covenants, we see that it's the same nature and character of God all the way through. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. God returning the people from exile is the same God who sent us Jesus Christ so that all could be reconciled and all could be forgiven. When we live with hopeful expectation, we realize that the possibility of salvation can come to us in the most unexpected ways. Loading up an ark full of animals in a basket floating down the Jordan River and getting stuck in the reeds, in exile, in a stable, on a cross, or even from out of a tomb. Or perhaps we see it even in a small but committed community of people who dare to bear the name Christian and to share that witness with the world. May we all live with this hopeful expectation that out of any circumstance, God can work for our good. Amen. And as we reflect on God's new covenant made with his people, let's stand.